was starting out, I started working with DK, and I think you were probably on those emails back and forth on projects, and I think I kind of learned about you, and a couple of months later, maybe a couple, maybe two years later, after I started working with DK, I think I emailed you, and this, I remember this well, I don't know if this was my first email with you or not, but I remember this well, I was asked by a company to do a director's treatment on a Ford F-150 um, mm. spot. And I had never even seen a director's treatment. And <laughs> I, I, I remember I emailed you out of the blue, uh, just asking, could you possibly share any insights with me? Because I really don't know what I'm doing. Because I had seen <laughs> your your um treatments especially your writing because I, I i i even to this day I, get, I keep talking about this to people i tell people that the, the most amazing decks the most amazing treatments i've ever seen in this industry and i've seen a few uh were the dk ones that you were responsible for the writing for that was just amazing to me um and that's why i reached out for my f-150 gig and you were very, you were so, so, uh, so good about it. You, you, you wrote me back um, this lengthy email and you shared a couple of treatments you had done. And that was very, very helpful to me. So thank you for that. And also thank you for coming on the podcast. This is a really beautiful intro. <laughs> Did you get the you job? Not? No. Oh. I, I don't think it was. I don't think it was coming from to me anyway. We just wanted to kind of see what my reaction was because I was just starting out. But that was uh, regardless of not winning. That was really cool. Do you remember any of that? I don't think you do, right? Probably. I vaguely do. Um, I vaguely remember sending off treatments. Mm-hmm. Now that you reminded me, yeah. But around that time, I don't know if that was post Dexter or not, but I was getting, um, I was getting emails on a, on a weekly basis and I'd always try to do my best to, um, write back. And, you know, like a lot of uh, college students would, would contact me and they would be like, Hey, you know, I want to do this. I have an assignment for school. I want to interview somebody. What can you tell me? And, and, um, I always did my best to kind of write back, um, as in depth as I possibly could. I mean, I'd spend at least a whole evening, um, kind of going through stuff, you know, per emails. Um, and it's mm-hmm. something I, I love doing. And and I, and I think the reason why maybe I love responding to emails so much is because I make it a habit to reach out to my heroes and email them. I do that all the time. I, I do it a lot. And I've met a lot of really cool oh, nice. people that way. And, oh, really? and the thing is, it's like, yeah. And, you know, and, and I think, I bet you what you're finding out with your podcast is that people are very receptive to um to 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 participate. That's right. So if you send somebody an email and you're just like, hey, I you know, like I sent an email to this uh, director who did Laws of Gravity, whose name I'm just spacing out on right now, um, um, uh, Nick Gomez, and he, uh, I saw Laws of Gravity when I was traveling, like right out of college, I I got this job. Um, filming hot rod shows and cars and i'm not a car guy you know like at all 
Right. But I got this job traveling around the country filming cars, and I walked into my hotel room one night, and I turned on the TV, and HBO was on, and there was this TV, there was this you know thing on the television. And I was like, you know, is this a documentary? Like, what is this? You know, it was so cinema verte, and so, um, it seemed so real to me. And I'm like, this can't, this this can't be. This isn't a documentary. There's no way it's a documentary. But it was shot like one, and I watched the whole thing, and I was really blown away. Um. And then it came on again while I was still in that same hotel, like later on in the week or something. And I watched it from the the beginning through, and I it just it, I was just so blown away by the movie. And then I was even more blown away with how it never ended up on DVD. It never you couldn't see it anywhere. All I had was the name of it, and I could search on the internet for it. It was called Laws of Gravity, and Peter Green I think was um, starred in it. Um, Edie um, Edie Falco it was one of her early ones. Um, mm -hmm. A couple right. of other people. So I reached out to him and I sent him a um, email and I was just like saying, hey, I, you know, this is long overdue, but, you know, I think Laws of Gravity is is one of the classic American films. I mean, it's incredible. And 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 why can't I see it anywhere? You know what I mean? I, I would love to be able to get it on DVD. Is it, is it going to be distributed or and I, yeah. I kind of went on. Um, it's a funny thing is he he wrote me back and he was just like, hey, um, you and I kind of work together in, in kind of a, um, you know, in a way I, I directed a couple of episodes of Dexter and I understand that you did the titles for it. And I was just like, <laughs> Oh my God, like how cool is that? So we kind of had a bit of a back and forth, um, you know, kind of a conversation, a bit of back and forth, um, yeah. about that. But I think, I think, you know, you know, the, the, the long and short of it is I, appreciate when people reach out to me because i yeah. reach out to other people and it started a another thing it started i um and i'll make this really short because it's a really long story but when i was when i was no just please teenager, please go please please tell us yeah. when i was a teenager i bought this um i bought this record by this band called fashion um and they were a band from birmingham england the name of the record was product perfect and i bought the record and back in those days, you know, before streaming, you know, before digital music or anything like that, you know, you had the album and your album selections were limited by what you could purchase and what you had. Right. Yeah. And then not only that, but if you were into music, um, you kind of, you know, you defined yourself by the music you owned. But also, you know, the music that you had that was good, but not necessarily popular, like a little bit more obscure kind of became a little bit more added to your mystique, you know, like I'm this cool guy. I know about these obscure bands that no one else knows about. And, yeah. um, you know, and, and that's, that's just kind of the way, you know, you kind of, you know, boys built their personality in their teens. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that time. So, uh, the band never really put out a second record. I mean, I waited years and I'm like, it was my favorite record. I thought it was so great. And so I waited years and years and years. Never put out a second record. And all of a sudden, I see the second record come out. And I'm looking at the album cover and I was like, like, is it? There used to be three guys in the band. Now there's five guys in the band. It's like, what's going on? You know? And then I, I listened to the music and I'm like, it's a disco band. You know, like they, they, came, they were like, they were like if Duran Duran did a lot of cocaine, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and it was nothing like the kind of dub reggae, you know, kind of dark underground, you know, kind of ska influenced punk that um, they once were. And so this, you know, this vexed me for God decades. It was just like, what the fuck? You know, I just kept on thinking to myself, like, what happened? You know, like, what happened? And so, um, 
I would search, you know, the internet for fashion. <laughs> you know, and of course, you, you of course. get nothing about that obscure band, you know. <laughs> and um, one night, you know, because I'm an insomniac and um, infinitely curious, I just started, you know, going through and I found like a user group about the band, the first incarnation of the band. And I'm like, oh my God, somebody oh, else well. in the world knows about this band? Like, unbelievable. A, a user group. Well. And, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. And then so... um. I, uh, it was, it was kind of bizarre that I think it was back even when MySpace was happening that the original singer and the songwriter from the first incarnation of that band before they became a disco band, the one that I liked, um, he had his, he posted something and his email address was there. And so I'm like, well, you know, what are the chances that this is the guy, you know, it's been 30 years since I own this, you know, like I bought this record 30 35 years ago like what's the chance so i wrote him a letter i was like man you know this record was a real life changer i kind of went on and on just like really kind of um you know kind of like a fan you know like a fan letter and then i finally ended up the letter i was like i go and what happened between the first and the second record like like what <laughs> happened you know because i don't think he was i i didn't know whether or not he was in the band and at the second record, and I later found out that the band actually hired a guy who looked like him to be their singer for whatever bizarre reason. Maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe it wasn't. I don't really know. Um, but he wrote me back this uh, really great letter, um, and he was really appreciative. And, you know, he was just like, this is why we put out this record in 1979 and, you know, kind of went on and on. And we just started a kind of a friendship over the um, over the uh, you know, over email. Uh, long story short um my background's in music I'm not, I'm not sure if you know that at all it's something that oh yeah people in this i do don't really know about and, I want, at all. and i want to get into that yeah i do yeah okay yeah. well he wrote me back this this email and we started kind of a friendship online and uh i got back into music because of him because he, he was just like i'm i'm thinking about putting back together um you know like a group for just one night to play in new york and i swear to god man i was just like oh i'm gonna be in that that group like i, I can play all their songs i learned how to play bass yeah. from that album i'm gonna be in this group so i i bought i bought a bass amp and i started rehearsing and i didn't tell him any of this right um <laughs> and then at the same time you know he was just like hey and, and thanks for your encouragement because i'm actually working on a book about that you know what happened between the first and the second record oh wow um which is a a really really interesting book and it should be a movie because it's it's he's he's such a talented writer his name is luke james um mm. luke sky skyscraper um luke skyscraper anyway, um <laughs> yeah yeah because yeah, he's, he's 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 six foot nine um right. well so what happened that kind then? of turned into a conversation back and forth well <laughs> what happened then is um i started kind of pushing him towards, you know, if he's doing new music or anything. And then I said to myself, it's about time I kind of put together a recording studio for myself at home. And so I did. And then he and I, we started making music together. And, you know, it was kind of cool because 40 years after his album came out, uh, we released an EP. So we, we, we recorded all this music together. I'm working with this guy who, you know, like was you know, embedded in my DNA is, is being mm -hmm. like a cool musician and stuff. That's so we, um, yeah, we, we put this, we put this EP out. It was called the ghost of Luke James. Uh, we put out, I think about five EPs, um, the ghost of Luke James it's on Apple. 
um, oh, nice. Spotify. But, um, you know, that's kind of how he, when you decide to open doors and stuff like that, how things happen. Yeah. Right. And this so was, was just, you know, nothing, nothing really happened with the music. I mean, you know, we have I think we have like a really powerful, strong following of about 14 people, you know, who probably <laughs> like what we did. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but to me, it was really, wasn't ever really about that. It was about this, um, uh, you know, this person who I kind of embedded on. Like, is that what they call it when 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 a baby looks at the mother's face for the first time? They kind of like, you know, that's how imprinting. they imprinting. I think they call it imprinting. Yeah, so, imprinting yeah, so yeah, his, yeah. His, his his music kind of imprinted something in my creative DNA, and to yeah. be able to um, be able to work goes. with him years yeah. later, and then you know. 40 years to the, you know, 40 years later, we put out this EP. Now he's put out, he put out like demos and, and stuff like that. And, and like right. kind of self-produced records. Um, so was but, this after, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing this was after you had Pachyderm Studios, right? Cause that was, when yeah, yeah. We were oh, yeah, much, yeah, yeah. Much, this is, this is just recently. This, this is just is recently. recently. Yeah, mean, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You, you, you 2019, wanna, 2019 you wanna, was when we put out that, our first record. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, Truly, I think it's now is a great time to go back in time and and talk about your origins because you started. I think I'm not I'm not mistaken that you started out with, uh, like you said, into music first, and you actually yeah. had your own studio. And there's uh, quite a story uh, around Nirvana, Kurt Cobain, and uh, the uh, the birth yeah. of those of one album in specific. I know the story a little bit from bits and pieces I read and talking to you. Can you run us through the whole story? I think it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of my life story in a way. I mean, I, I started, um, you know, I met this kid uh, named Mark Adler, who, you know, my mom said that he'll either be incredibly successful and wealthy, he'll end up in jail or he'll die. And he did all three. <laughs> so oh. he um he he died a number of years ago but he was a, he was a pretty pretty magical person and he came up to me one day and he was like you should play bass and i was like really he goes yeah he goes there's a shitload of guitar players you know in our in our middle school and um and his voice was higher because he hadn't reached puberty yet and he's just like you should play bass um <laughs> so i was like all right you know like i'll play bass because he was just like you know we've got like 20 guitarists in school and there's no bass player and i play the drums so we, I started playing bass and, um, it was one of those things that I picked it up and I could play it. Like I never, I tried to play guitar before, but I just couldn't finger the chords and stuff. So, um, I just picked up bass and I started playing it. And my mom was like, you know, if you're going to be a musician, you're going to have to take lessons. And I'm like, okay, I don't know. You know, it seems kind of silly, but it was the right thing for her to do. Um, and so I took, um, I went down to the local music store where the guitar hero this guy who was in the popular cover band in my my hometown of Wausau, Wisconsin. He um he was a guitar teacher there and he was cool. He's like the coolest guy in town, you know, like by far. And um, so he's like, Hey, you you know, gonna play bass. What music do you like? And I was like, Oh, I really like cheap trick. And he's like, Okay, and he pulls out a cheap trick record and we kind of played along to one of the songs. And he goes, Now for next week, learn how to play the first song on this cheap trick record. And I was like, Okay. And so I went home and I'm, you know, if you know anything about me, you know, I'm pretty obsessive compulsive. Like, I'm, you know, I can't, I can't stop. Right. 
<laughs> so I go home and I learn every single song on the on the record. And I come back to my second bass lesson. And he was like, so did you learn that song? I was like, oh, I learned the entire record. And he's like, no, you didn't. I was like, yeah, I, I did. So he's like, all right. And so he just kind of started dropping the needle on you know random songs. And I'd just play along with it. And he's like, holy shit. He goes, you're really good at this. Well, and nice. And to kind of deviate from this music story a little bit, that was one of the first times... You know, there's there's been a handful of times in my life where I've received encouragement, right? Mm. It's like you're really good at this. And what what happens when somebody says you're really good at something? If you're paying attention, or if you're in tune to those sorts of things, you don't want to let that person down, right? And right. and you kind of go, oh, I'm really good at this, and so I have a responsibility to be really good at this, right? Because he, you know, identified that I was good in this, and so I'm going to. I'm going to live up to that, right? Because it's like a challenge. It's like, oh, so the next time I come in, I, I've got to be really good. And so yeah. I just became a really good bass player. And I started playing in bars when I was like 15 years old in bands. And we had a light show. We had a PA system. We had a bus, you know, like, and we weren't even old enough to drive. And this was that kid, Mark Adler, you know, he, right. we, we, we skipped out of school. We took his parents' car and drove to Green Bay and walked into a music store and he saw a microphone sitting on a mic stand and he shoplifted it. And he's like, let's go. And so we ran out of the music store and we get back into his, you know, back into his car. And he was just like, we should start a band. And I was like, okay. And then we did. And then like within a year we had a, a follow spot light show. Um, and that's a whole nother story on how we got that equipment. I'm not going to go into it because I'm not sure the statute of limitations are really run out yet. <laughs> right. But uh, so, um, <laughs> So anyway, so I started playing in, in bars when I was really young. And then I met this other guy. His name is Mark Walk. And he's a, he's a very um, successful music producer. He's worked with like Skinny Puppy and Ogre. And he had the band called Ruby back in the 90s and all this stuff. And that's the person who I started Pachyderm with. Well, he got, a, he got a job working at a local music store. And this guy, Dick Ludholtz, you know, ran the, ran the music store. And he was so cool. He was just like, you know what? If you guys want to learn how to use this equipment, you can take it out um, after we close on Saturday and just bring it back before we open on Tuesday. And so every weekend, me and Mark would take out all the recording gear, the ARP Odysseys, you know, um, the Roland TR-909s, like all every bit of equipment that we could take out. We would bring it back to this house that he was renting for 65 bucks a month. And we would set up an entire recording studio in his, uh, basically in his living room and turn the entire house into, you know, isolation booths and everything like that. And so we just started recording and, and we just recorded nonstop. Mm. And um, that turned into kind of started recording other people, right? So then it was just like, oh, this, this folk guy wants to come in and record stuff. So we would do that. And then um, I at that point, I went off to college. I went to Minneapolis College of Art and Design, and Mark went to the University of Madison, uh, Wisconsin and Madison. And he met this guy and um, who was a really eclectic, strange um, songwriter. His name is Jim Nickel. And he reminded us of Sid Barrett. You know, he was just, something was really kind of off kilter about the way he wrote songs, a complete naive songwriter but it was all these different time signatures it was like super weird you know like mm -hmm. stuff and um yeah. so we recorded a record with him um and that band was called mean old elephant and um you can <laughs> hear it on uh 
you can hear it on YouTube. This this guy posted the CD on YouTube, and I'm like, that's unbelievable. I think we oh, made you can like, find it? oh wow, yeah, I think we made 500 of these, and um, and you know, it's like I'm proud of the music. You know, look, I was 20, <laughs> you know, when when we made this, and so right. we went into this great recording studio, and you know, finally Jim, you know, came back, and he was like, I had such a great time making this record. He goes, I want to make another record. And we're like, okay, great. And he's like, but, you know, he goes, I think it would be really smart if we had our own recording studio. And we said, yeah, that would be great if we had our own recording studio, of course. Um, so he dropped the ball. He was just like... Did you know anything about about recording at that point? Did you know anything about engineering and recording? Not other than just taking home gear on the weekends and, and doing right. it ourselves, you know? So he, you know, he basically was just like, look, I've got... Um, I can afford to build a recording studio. And so, um, you know, we looked, they wanted to move to LA and I was just like, don't move to LA, you know, cause at that point LA was just hair metal and just garbage. Right. And I was like, don't move to LA, um, move to Minneapolis cause Minneapolis has a great music scene. And so, um, they, they saw a couple bands from Minneapolis at that time, you know, it was trip Shakespeare was really the big one for us. Some um, soul asylum, all these bands, Jayhawks, um, Whisker do replacements, you know, it was it was a a pretty amazing scene. Run Westy Run. Yeah. And I was in a band there too called uh, Rhea Valentine. And um, you know, it just kind of ballooned. And we found this house way off into the woods. And it was a six thousand square foot house with an indoor pool that had been sitting vacant for 10 years. Five years. I think it was five or ten years. It was just vacant, you know. 40 acres of land, two trout ponds, a trout stream. Um, it was built in this, in this glen of uh, limestone ridge, right? And there's this beautiful house that sat right on the opening of this limestone ridge. And you saw the trout stream went kind of under part of the house and stuff. It was That's beautiful. Incredible. Yeah. Well, and we were like, we were like, wow, you know, what a great place. And they're like, yeah. Um, and we're selling the house and the property and everything, $200,000. Like, are you kidding me? And it was, you know, it was like, it was like 45 miles outside of Minneapolis. Um, so we, we, we bought the house and then we're like, well, we're not going to destroy the house by putting a recording studio in it. So we built a recording studio and anchored into, into a side of one of those hills. Right. So if you're up on top of the hill, the roof line, you know, touches the hill, the hill mm -hmm. goes down, and the, you know, the studio kind of sticks out from it right um and, you know we were we were well over our heads you know like we didn't really know what we we're doing and that was half of the reason why we did it because we had no clue like what we were doing was impossible if we would have right. been smarter we'd never done it right so um yeah. we were like you know like this is how this is how how naive we were we we're like who did prince hire to build paisley park we should hire that guy <laughs> <laughs> and um, we found out his name was Brett Thaney, and he worked for Westlake Audio, which is, uh, you know, where Michael Jackson recorded Thriller and all this stuff. And Westlake had a a speaker design and a, and a studio design arm. Right. And um, so we called it Brett Thaney. We're like, yeah, yeah, we're a bunch of 20-year-old cool dudes, you know. Let's from get that guy. Soda. <laughs> you know, why don't you come and design our studio? And he's like, all right. And so... um. I don't really know. I think he was kind of sticking it to Prince, you know, to be honest with you, to build another wow. recording studio like that close to Paisley Park. 
Right. So for whatever reason, he may have been in town to do some final things for um, Paisley Park. Because I don't think he would fly out to meet us. But he, we had a meeting with him. And you know, here we're, you know, me and Mark, we're just like these two skinny, long-haired musician kids, you know. And This, he, this is 1990s, what, four, two? Oh, no, this is 1988, 1989. Oh, 88, yeah. okay. All right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, so anyway, he, he meets with us and he couldn't stop laughing. He's like, this is... <laughs> this is weird, man. You know, he's like, this isn't, this isn't, you guys aren't like who usually make a studio. And we're like, really? We're like, yeah. What are studio people like? And he's like, well, not like this. So he um, was like, I'm all in. And so he designed our studio for us. And um, from what I understand, it's like one of the last, if not the last Westlake design studio in, in the world. It's wow. like one of the last ones. I might not be on that, but I saw somewhere, on a blog where somebody said that. And I'm like, yeah, that seems about right. Yeah. So um, he designed our studio and um, it just, it, it just blew up, you know, because the house was really something, the property was really something. And then Brett Faney designing the studio was really something. And we just had a couple bands, you know, again, pre-internet, right. We had a couple yeah. bands come down and we're like, Hey, you should check out a recording studio. And they're like, all right. And so um, they come down and they're like, holy shit, like, what is this? I was like, yeah, it's cool, right? Um, so we just started marching bands down from um, from uh, Minneapolis. And, um, you know, once the studio was finished, man, we were book solid from uh, 1990 to probably 1993, like every day. Oh, wow. Completely book holy solid. And shit. You know, and our and our entire our, our entire business loan was like six hundred twenty thousand dollars. You know, because we built we built the studio ourselves for one hundred thirty grand. You know, and right. uh, we we put in an SSL and we put in a, you know finally we got a Neve in there. Um, so then you know like we're running the recording studio and um, I worked pretty much every single session at that studio um, from the day we opened to the day I left and I my hours. You know, some, you know, five to seven days a week were noon to 8 a.m., you know, because I would go down and start. The bands didn't show up until noon. Yeah. We would record at night. And, um, you know, then, you know, like one musician would come in and then leave. And the next, and as an engineer, you're there the entire time. So, um, yeah, I I worked 8 a.m. till or noon to 8 a.m. for about five years. And, you know, I met some ridiculously amazing people. I worked with uh, Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth. He and I and uh, a guy named uh, Brian Paulson. Um, we were working on a Babes in Toyland record, but they Babes decided after they were done with tracking that they would never show up again. And so we had an entire, I think we had 10 days of studio time. And Lee was like, what should we do? And so we made like nearly three hours of soundscapes. <laughs> oh. That was really cool. Oh, um, man. And I then I, I worked story, with a guy. Those, story, it's, those studio um, stories are always so cool. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, it was the, <laughs> it was the perfect time. It was I was the perfect yeah. age. It was the perfect time, and everything was, was the perfect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so then I worked with a guy named Joe Blaney. Um, he did a he did the, one of the Soul Asylum records, and I worked with a Michael Beinhorn, um, who did the next Soul Asylum record I worked on, and then um, mm -hmm. that I engineered part of, and then. Um, you know, Steve Jordan was another guy who came in. Um, uh, Brendan O'Brien was probably the coolest guy I worked with. Uh, I worked with George Draculius. 
worked with all these like huge, you know, George Aquilius discovered the Black Crows, you know, and they were they were working on the Jayhawks record. And that's the one that I uh, worked on with them. I think it was Hollywood Town Hall. And um, I worked with um, Michael Beinhorn, you know, on uh, Soul Asylum's Grave Dancers Union, which did Runaway Train, um, which exploded mm -hmm. and won a Grammy and yeah. and stuff. Um, you know, and I honestly, I just don't remember everyone else there there's been so many bands but the funny thing was is i hit a brick wall and you know we were recording rock bands and basically you know when you're recording a rock band it's like it's as loud as a construction site you know you're on you're it's like heavy construction you know it, they yeah. could be jackhammers but they're guitars and drums and after a while it just really uh wears on you and combine that with the lifestyle of the the drugs yeah. and the alcohol and stuff, which I I didn't really, I smoked a little pot with the bands, but I couldn't, I was working. Right. And I was always so paranoid about my job and doing a good job that I never really did it with them at all. Yeah. But being around it, you know, was, was uh, awful. And, uh, you know, one day I walked back into the house at like, I don't know, four in the morning or something. And there's, I walk into the house at four in the morning and the house is haunted. And that's a whole nother story. You know, like if you search, <laughs> Packerdom Recording Studio haunted. It's it's haunted. There's been a lot of oh really sightings. oh wow yeah. I've <laughs> I've felt stuff. I've never seen anything like other people have, but I've felt stuff. I'm just like I got to get out of here, man, because this is feeling weird to me. Um. So anyway, I walk into the house at like four in the morning, and I opened up our front door because the bands lived in the house when they recorded at the studio, right? Yeah. So I walk in the front door, and there's this guy standing there with a uh, he was the band member, and he's. You know, he's got a huge fan base, so I'm not going to say who it is. But I mm. walk in there and he's got a pillowcase over his head with two holes cut in it, uh, a nine inch uh, knife. And all the lights are off and the place is haunted. He's standing you know, like 10 feet in front of me and he starts <gasps> mumbling. Something. I, I knew I knew Holy that I knew because he said my name. And, and I was just like, I'm like, what in the what is this? So um. <laughs> I freak out and I run in to the first bedroom there and uh, I woke up, I think it was the bass player. And I was just like, Hey, your singer is I, something's something's going on. I don't know what it is, man, but I don't really want to have much to do with this. You know, I'm not paid to do this sort of thing. You know, it's like, I just want to go yeah, to sleep. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so that was kind of, for me, the kind of the beginning of the end, I was like, this is too crazy for me. And at the ripe old age of 27, I'm like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? You know, it's right. like, oh my God, big existential crisis, right? Like, I can't, I can't do this. This is nuts. I'm so scared. So, um, I, um, I basically just decided to leave just like that. You know, I was just like, I'm out of here. Like, I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. I don't know if I like doing this or if I'm just good at it. You know, that mm. was one thing. Because I think a lot of people can kind of get stuck in what they're good at and never, oh, yeah. never grow up. And, you know, oh, like yeah. my career has been, you know, different. Every five years is different. Right. So, um, I was like, I was like, screw it. And so, uh, I left, man, I, I left the recording studio and I went back to college where I was studying. I, I created my own interdisciplinary. I was studying sound and, and, uh, film, you know, because I couldn't draw, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't, I, I'm, you know, still to this day, I'm, I'm a terrible trying to draw stuff i'm just awful at it so if it doesn't have a knob or a button i'm pretty much lost right, <laughs> right. so uh, 
I just, I kind of gravitated towards film and in like, I, you know, my plan was to become, you know, so, uh, some hybrid between Laurie Anderson and Brian Eno. That was my goal. Like I wanted to have, wanted to make live performances, multimedia stuff. And Brian Eno, I thought was so brilliant. And, and um, that's what I wanted to do. So I went back to, I went back to school and <laughs> two months later, Nirvana comes in to record in utero. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's like, I've been here. I've been through all of this. I waited through all of this, man. Yeah. And then the biggest band in the world at the time comes into the recording studio <laughs> that I built and that I ran, you know, two months after I leave and like, here they are. It's like, yeah. it's like the coolest place in the world right now on earth. And I'm yeah. back here at, at my college. And, um, you know, what did you do, what, what did you do man? Did you, did you go what back? Did you had to, you had to go back, right? No, I didn't, man. No, I, I didn't. I, um, I, I was explaining to, you know, these, I know, at that time I felt like they were kids, but you know, they were like 19 or 20 and they're like, so let me get this straight. You used to own Pachyderm where Nirvana is recording right now, but you decided to come back to college. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and if you haven't gone through it, you don't know. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, you, had made, you had made your decision, you've seen it all and you wanted to, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so, well, here's here's the crazy thing, and this is where that encouragement comes again. So I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I had a I had an audio and a photography or film, you know, um, um, degree that I kind of created, and I was kind of coasting. I'm like, I don't know what what I'm doing. You're like, I have no clue. So um, I get into my film class, and the the film professor, who is the the dean of that um, that uh, division. He was like, yeah, just go out and shoot some stuff, cut it together, uh, make a montage. And, you know, like, we'll talk about it. I can't remember what exactly what the assignment was, but I was like, all right. So I, I you know, grab a 16 millimeter um, Bolex and I go down to the end of a runway. Something I still love doing is uh, fighting or uh, filming planes. <clears throat> and against this overcast sky, I just shot with my Bolex, you know, the uh, planes coming in and I would turn the camera. So it looked like the planes were kind of spinning and cartwheeling and stuff like that and i was like oh that's cool and i got it developed and um i started cutting this together and i'm sitting in the edit suite and i'm just like god you know like editing is like music it's just exactly what i've done with music it's amazing you know it's it's so it's so exactly like music and so i um i really enjoyed myself but i didn't really think much of it and i i um you know and, and like this film teacher was a hard ass like everyone was terrified of him he was absolutely scary as they got you know you've seen whiplash it was like that guy that that yeah, music yeah, teacher okay. that was my film teacher right he was it was that guy right and so I'm like i'm kind of like i'm like okay i don't give a fuck if he likes it or not like i don't care i'm gonna just show this thing you know i kind of you know working up my my confidence and i play this and i i recorded the soundtrack um and i, I played this thing and i showed it and stopped and I'm looking, I'm in the film booth, you know, behind in the back of the class. And he's sitting there and his head kind of goes down like this. And I was like, oh shit, yeah, this is going to be ugly, but I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. And he turns around and he looks at me and he goes, you are going to be a fantastic editor because this was incredible. And I was oh, like, wow. oh. I was like, I was like, yeah, I, well, I had a lot of fun doing it. You know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, how you kind of build yourself up and you know, all of a sudden, you know, then your confidence like says something and you're just like. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, and um, and then, and again, getting back to the same thing when you know when the, my guitar teacher told me I was going to be a good bassist, um, yeah, that you're going to be a really good editor. And so then, what did I have to do on all my pieces? All my pieces had to be edited really well. I had to really think about the editing because I had something to live up to. Now it's like I'm the guy who he said was going to be a good editor, so I got to live up to this. And so that's literally how I started editing. Right. You know, I, I had no, I had no, no plans to be an editor ever before but that was it that, that did it and i think that really shows it in uh, in your work because i uh, i remember back at dk you know you know one of the th things that i really loved and i still love about the work that dk was doing back then was a lot of it was shot live action there was a lot of mixed media being cut together and the whole thing kind of had um this feel to it that you don't really find nowadays and I've, uh, I guess a, a lot of that was part of, because I know you and Josh Bodnar, who was also yep. uh, an editor there. A lot of those guys were um, basically, you know, the basis of the company was editing first, I think. You know, direction, concept, but all, a lot of it was coming down to edit, editing. And I think one of the greatest examples of that was obviously Dexter, because it won the Emmy and had all these accolades, rightly so. And can you kind of, go into that and how how editing was such a big part of the process for uh something like dexter and and how, uh on a more specific question how large was that team does I, I never really got the sense of how many people worked on that thing well okay let me let me back up two steps um about mm -hmm. um why editing was kind of a dk signature yes um again um i I started working at Digital Kitchen when they were in transformation. They had a creative team there, um, maybe for a couple of years. I can't remember, but they all had left. You know, they all had abandoned um, Paul Matthias, and Paul Matthias is the founder of the company. So he was kind of rebuilding a team, and um, and it really, you know, it started as a, it started as the like, hey, let's have a little, let's have a little motion graphics department for my ad agency. Is what you know, Paul had owned a pretty successful agency and, and digital kitchen was an offshoot of that. So, um, you know, I, I, at that time I had already purchased a media 100 and I had my little edit suite set up and, you know, I was cutting anything that moved low budget, you know, um, low budget, um, music videos and, you know, industrial videos, anything that moved, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I didn't judge anything. I'd cut anything and I worked my ass off. And so Paul mm -hmm. got my name. Was this being yeah. done at your amazing loft in Chicago? That I've no, no, this, so was much about? this was in oh, Seattle. This was Seattle. I moved okay. to Seattle. Yeah, after I after I um after I went back to college, I was like, man, I, I can't be the guy who used to own um Pachyderm and then have an entry level job in the same city. You know, I can't. I just can't. My ego wouldn't let me. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Seattle was really happening at that time, and so I think I can re I can restart myself in Seattle. So right. I, I started a little suite in Seattle. Got a call. Paul Matthias wanted to meet me. And I'm like, I'm never going to work on commercials. You know, like, that's not cool. That's not who I am. And at the same time, I actually turned down a job for a Mystery Science Theater 3000, which uh, I don't know if you know that um, TV show, no. but it's kind of a no. cult. It's kind of a cult TV show here in America. And my it was my brother-in-law's TV show. And he's like, do you want to be my editor? And I'm like, no, I'm far too cool for that, <laughs> um, which wasn't the best way to handle that. But um, yeah. so he... Uh, <laughs> So Paul Matthias called me up. I went out to meet with Paul Matthias and I was just like, wow, this guy's really smart. And, uh, and we were challenging each other. You know, he was like, 
you know, he would say something and I'd be kind of cocky. And I think he appreciated the fact that I was kind of cocky and stuff. And I was like, wow, this is a really great, you know, this guy's really smart. I can learn a lot from this guy and the place is cool, you know? And I walked in and there was a designer there. His name is Jay Bryant, remarkably gifted guy. And he had all this fine art stuff painted all over the walls and printed, you know, hung up and referencing art. And I was just like, wow, this isn't like a commercial place. You know, this is kind of neat. So um, Paul hired me and, um, you know, at that time, you have to understand that I think After Effects was still called COSA, right? I think it was COSA After Effects 3.0. And I think 3.0 was the big upgrade. I think, you know, before that it was like using a DOS program and then 3.0 came along. Yep. And um, so... And the, and the machines weren't that powerful. You know, it's kind of funny to think about it um, now. But if you go back, I mean, come on, we're going back to 1999, right? Um, going back to 1999. And I think, um, I don't even know what the machines were back then. I think they were called Quadras or something. I don't even remember. Probably, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quadra. I think, I think Quadras back then. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, and and getting back to how did we start doing editorial? Um, mm. Well, what what the designers would do is they would render out stuff, and because we didn't have the ability to play anything back, you know, real time on a computer, because you couldn't do that then, it had mm. to be imported to our Avid to play it back and look at it and then evaluate it in real time with music, right? Because you couldn't do right. that on a computer. So right. that's where the um, edit place became the creative hub of everything. So the designers would render out a chunk, bring it into uh, the edit. I would put it in the edit. I would kind of cut it up and make it work with the music because animating to music back then wasn't really that easy to do on the um, Mac. And so right. I would edit it, the music, and then I would kick that back out and they would change their animation to what I edited. So it was so really... It, it came out of... It came out of necessity, basically, because you kind of oh. needed to run it through Avid to kind of see it uh, come, yeah. come alive. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. And right. and th and then, you know, that's I became kind of the hub, you know. And Josh, Josh worked the same way. I hired Josh. Um, you know, there was a guy who was at Digital Kitchen named Tony, and and as soon as I started there, he had kind of one foot out the door. He's like, I want to go work at Imaginary Forces because they're doing cool stuff, and um. I was like, oh, I still want to live in Seattle. So, you know, and so Tony left and then it was just me and I was the only editor and I was cutting all the reels and I was cutting everything for Digital Kitchen. And I was working till midnight and my girlfriend at the time left me because of it. And, um, you know, I just was never home. You know, I would go to work at nine, come home at midnight. And I, I, was, think, I, I, think we've all, I think we've all been there to a certain <laughs> degree at some stage in our lives. Well, so, yeah. I thought it was the best thing in the world. And so, uh, <clears throat> we needed a second editor. So that's when I hired Josh. And I'm, I'm when I met Josh, man, he was, God, I mean, he was, and still is like just the most gung ho dude that possible. Do Let's mean? do it, man. Let's do it. <laughs> and so I'm like, that's the kind of energy I want to be around. And so, um, okay, so, yeah. you know, he, uh, we, I hired him as, you know, like the second editor and, um, well, and the long story short, so all of the stuff would come into the edit suite. All the designers would sit in the edit suite Right. Because I had the mouse and I was running the Avid, I kind of ran the uh, critique and we would sit and critique the work and then it would kind of go back out to the designers and kind of come back in. 
Right. Um, everything was done on jazz drives. I'm not sure if you remember those, but they were just like these awful. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I remember those huge drives. Yeah, and, and we had no, we had no we had no file um, naming conventions or anything like that. It was just like dope shit, dope shit to <laughs> you know, dope shit for you know. And I'm just like, can we just name it at least after the project? That's, 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 that's a real fucking studio right there. <laughs> <laughs> small studio great well, and that's, yeah. well and right yeah. around that time is when uh we you know they hired danny yaunt um who at that time was making websites you know he didn't do anything with i had I, I had uh, i had danny uh, danny was the first i don't know if you if you noticed that danny was the first yeah. guest on the podcast and we talked about a bunch of shit and a lot of it was dk and he uh he specifically mentioned you he loved working with you in the, in the ed room because one of the reasons was he found you really, really funny and easy to easy to um, yeah, very easy to work with. And he said something which was interesting, and I think it's true: is when you're working with clients, you better have an, an editor that's funny and easy to work with because those are some long sessions. Man. Yeah. You got to be able to yep. have some humor. <laughs> so you work with Danny, oh. and Danny was doing websites, and then he got into DK. Yeah, yeah, he had sent Paul Matthias, um, and also he was. You know, Paul had a colleague in Seattle who highly recommended him, Danny. He was like, this guy's really talented. And so Danny sent um, a piece of, um, you know, he, like his one of his first motion design pieces. And I think it was like home movies done to piano music and some type. And mm -hmm. um, and he came out. I was skeptical. I'm like, I don't know, man. I don't know. It doesn't seem cool. You know, it's like it's like in the middle of grunge and everything. It's like, I don't know, man. Did you hear that piano music? I just I'm not sure. Right. And um, right. it's like, no, I think this guy's really talented and this guy's really talented. And so he came on and was like, holy cow, seeing him explode was kind of kind of amazing. I mean, Danny is one of the more unique people I've ever met. Like, he's ridiculously silly, you know, like <laughs> he and I, we still on Instagram, we, we send each other like stupid videos, like multiple times a day. I did a couple this morning even. But he's also like at the same time, like one of the most serious people you'll ever meet. Like when he comes, when he would come to work at Digital Kitchen, and we were all like, you know, we all thought we were pretty cool. But Danny would come in, sit down at his desk, and, you know, his eyes were like glued to his monitor and he wouldn't move until lunch, where he would then get up and go take a walk and start shooting photographs. And then he would come back after lunch and his eyes were glued to his um, computer screen. Yeah. He just sat there and, uh, you know, man, we worked on some projects and um, things really developed really fast because I think it was only a little over a year, maybe a year and a half that I was working on uh, at Digital Kitchen. And then Danny came on, you know, and I think it was maybe for Danny, it was maybe eight months. Um, mm -hmm. We got the gig to do Six Feet Under. Yeah. <clears throat> And we did this treatment and Danny's treatment was really beautiful. And, um, you know, and, and it was a hybrid of like three designers work. Like Danny did the main thing, but then Alan Ball was like, I really like that thing that you guys did with the wilting flowers. So could you incorporate that into Danny's idea? And we're like, sure. And then I, I really like this, um, end tag that Mason nickel designed. Um, can you incorporate that into Danny's idea? And we're like, sure. And, um, you know, we, again, because everything was done in edit, 
um, Danny did his storyboards and kind of did an animatic and I worked with him, you know, back and forth in the edit. And at that point I was the only one who had any live action experience at that point in the company. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> and I was too busy to go on to the shoot for six feet under, which, you know, in hindsight kind of blew, but you know, we got all the footage in and I'm telling you, man, there's some things that I don't really know what happened with six feet under, but, um, I look at that work and I'm like, I don't know how I did that. That wasn't even me. That wasn't even me doing that. Like, I don't know what mm. happened. I think that title sequence was going to exist. And we just happened to be the people that it passed through. <laughs> I mean, it felt that way because the edit that you see on television is my third edit. Oh, wow. It went, it went, through, it went through, like I did one revision. I did one cut. It's one of those. And yeah. yeah and Alan Ball was like, Oh, it's great, but um, show less of the um, show less of the uh, the 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 mortician, um, and um, because there's another there's another show on HBO, the mortician, <clears throat> and then um, he goes and make the whole thing feel like that one shot, the shot where and it actually is Danny standing at the end of the hallway, really out of focus, looks like a mm -hmm. little keyhole post, and that we're yeah, dollying yeah. towards him. He goes, make the whole thing feel like that shot. And that was it. I mean, that's all Alan Ball told us. He was just like, just do that. And I think, I think it'll be really good. That's and so, um, yeah. And then I, you know, I kind of rejiggered the edit and he's like, oh, that's great. <laughs> and that was it. Man. That was like, it. and I'm, I'm like, I'm like, this is really good. And like, I don't know. This is like my first, you know, among my first like professional, really good pieces. You know what I mean? Where you, you always have your things and you're like, yeah, it's pretty good. But yeah, that yeah, was yeah. like, really good and then uh, as a joke i said to paul matthias i was like man i wonder if they have emmy awards for title sequences wouldn't that be great and then you he kind of got this look on his face no i had no idea no idea no clue no no <laughs> why would a why would, why would a bunch of yahoos from seattle be following the emmys right no, <laughs> like, what do we have to do with that and the, and the creative arts emmys weren't even televised so we didn't even know right. that i didn't even know, know that there was such a thing as a creative arts emmy so Paul gets this weird look on his face. He goes, yeah, I wonder. And he comes back in. He goes, there is an Emmy for um, title sequences. And I was like, wow, can we enter it? You know, can we, would they let us enter the Emmys? And yeah, it turns out that they did. And we won the, um, you know, we won the, won the Emmy award for title design. And, you know, like less than two years into my first professional job. Right. I was just like, wow, that's crazy. That um, is crazy. Yeah. Amazing. Well, and then the, uh, well, the, the, the company went then at that point, it was just only 10 people. Right. And I'll, I'll get around to Dexter real fast. Jeez, the 10 people. We went, yeah. <laughs> the company is about 10 people. And we went from after six feet under, we went from 10 people in the course of about three years to, I think close to 400. Holy shit. Um, yeah. And it was, you know, we, we, we were doing so much work. We couldn't keep up with it. And at that and point is when they kind of, Ship me off to Chicago to help you know right. establish and, that. And do, and do you uh, do you think that the work exploded because of the Emmy per se, or oh, was it? Well, yeah. the Emmy it was really the, it was the response of the title sequence, and that's the thing with title sequences, man. I mean, and there's categories of work that um, go beyond the industry, right? You you, could, you become a part of culture. And right. that title sequence, and I, you know, I don't, I don't really think I'm being too arrogant here, but you know, seven blew up for movie titles, and everybody started kind of paying attention for movie titles. And I honestly think that Six Feet Under was 
one of those title sequences that blew up for TV titles. People were like, wow, TV titles could yeah. be cool. And the other thing that you have to keep in consideration, which is so different back then um, than it is now, is this was the very first um, explosion of original programming for HBO and yeah. um, FX and Fox. You know, like there was no original programming really much to speak of. The Sopranos yeah. had been out, I think, already at that point. And Six Feet Under, I think, was like HBO's second, you know, kind of big serious show. Actually, um, actually, I, I really do agree with you because everybody says that the, the Sopranos title sequence started that revolution, and I get it. But to me, uh, the one that really started was was Six Feet Under. Uh, that's a much more considered, to my to my eye, much more considered title sequence than what Sopranos was. The Sopranos title sequence was. So I think that really tracks with me, and it's it's funny that. You were saying that Danny came in and obviously it was really important to getting that job done. And then I think uh, Danny, again, later in his career, kind of did the same thing to a degree, even though it wasn't as clear cut as it was with Six Feet Under, where you could really see that this is this is something that's going to be transformational for the industry, if you can call it. Mm-hmm. But I think when he did the Iron Man title sequence, for the movie uh, years later, the prologue, I think that also started something going for uh, title sequences again. Uh, and then you can really see it, you can still see it to this day, the, the influence that it had. Because back then, live action for Six Feet Under started the trend, which you guys really wrote, yeah. that uh, BK did. And then I think stuff the prologue was doing there with Iron Man and some other shows, then got picked up by other studios and you know Elastic is still doing it to this day and other studios are doing yeah. it. So I, 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 I can track it that way. I don't know if you can see it or if you agree with what I'm saying, but kind of I kind of see it that way. Well, here's the interesting thing. It kind of comes around full circle. Do you know who else worked on that Edelman, um, Iron Man title sequence? Uh, who did? You're, you're from Barcelona. Oh, the Devane? Yeah, yeah, they were, they were, they they worked on that as well. Oh wow, that I'm pretty sure. Bad. Double double check, but um, I know that they did at least one. I'm not sure if it was the one you're referring to that Danny did, but I'm pretty sure. Right, right. I think oh, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's kind of a neat neat uh, thing to come around to. It is, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, well, getting back to um, you know, so. You know, Danny had pointed out, you know, yeah, you're working with clients. You're working with clients who work with designers. That's how I became a creative director because all of my job was putting stuff in my Avid and critiquing it. Right. This needs to go faster. This needs to do this. It's, you know, try this, try that. And I, mine was usually, my comments were usually about pacing and uh, not necessarily design. I never really thought of myself as a designer. Um, so I didn't really get into specific aesthetics because, you know, like working with people like Mason Nickel and Danny, you know, they had that covered. You know, right. Right. <clears throat> my thing was just how does it feel with the music? Like, how does it work? Yeah. Um, but I did that with clients. I did that with uh, designers. And then, you know, I kind of became a creative director. And when I got shipped off to um, Chicago um, and working with Don McNeil, who ran that office, you know, Don Don McNeil was Paul Matthias's partner. Um, right. You know, Don was just like, <laughs> it, it, okay so paul's this like really cerebral kind of you know photographer art guy um don is like this rugby player like he is he literally he was a rugby player and so don's like yeah we're gonna do this, this is gonna be great you know like you'll come in yeah we're gonna you know and, and 
Don, like, you know, he played fast and loose with everything. And, and, um, you know, so, you know, he was a force of nature too. And, um, was like, yeah, you're going to, you know, you, why don't you direct this? Why don't you be a creative? And just kind of, you know, pushing you into things that you were really kind of way out of your comfort zone. So he kind of made me a creative director, which then after a couple of years, I became executive creative director of that office, right. which was a really bizarre position for me to be in. And it's worth noting that I was not a designer. So I was kind of in charge of designers. And to this day, I've kind of established a way that I kind of work with people. It's like, I'm not going to tell you how to do things or what to do. I'm going to, I'm going to describe very accurately what needs to be done. And I'm going to trust you, your talents that you can do that because that's why you're here, right? You want to be, you want to express yourself creatively. That's why you're here. And that's the way I work with um, DPs. That's why I work with production designers. You know, it's that, that's, that's why I love live action directing so much. And that's what I do now. I'm, I do nothing but live action direct, but um, you know, like, and 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 there's a credit to to Paul Matthias on how he started Digital Kitchen. It was it was much more like an ad agency, and that's a good segue into um, Dexter. And so mm-hmm. we got this call um, from these people, and um, they were just like uh, Michael Cuesta was the one of the directors and creators of the show, and and a couple of the producers, and um, Jonathan Goldwyn from MGM. You know his I think his grand grandfather started MGM they were all on the call and they were just like yeah this guy he's a he's a murderer he's a serial killer but he's a good guy you know and um we really loved the um title sequence you did for six feet under and what do you what would you do for Dexter and on the very initial call they wanted to know they wanted us to tell them what their title sequence was going to be like I'm like I don't know like I have no idea you know this is just the first call like we're gonna have to go and brainstorm and come back to you on that. So the way digital kitchen was run is you have your creative director talk to the clients. The creative director has to put together a very detailed and a very structured creative brief, just like you would in an agency. Right. So I have to go through, take all of my notes, go through, and there was a form that we had, you know, like we had a form that to kind of keep you on base. Right. And also too, (laughs) Paul had us do it in, um, Oh God, it's like this awful program. It wasn't Illustrator. It was even worse than Illustrator. Um, it was it was a precursor to Illustrator. Quark. Yeah, Quark Express, like Quark. I actually and used Quark back well, It's terrible, man. It's God a, bless it's him, a piece but, of shit. Yeah. Well, we would have to, he wanted the creative briefs to be a work of art on themselves. So he was like, if you can't describe yeah. what the job is in this box, you're not doing your job. You know, if you can't describe what the job is within this box or what, what element of it is within this box, then you're speaking too much, you know? And so yeah, it's really cool. At the time I hated it. I was just like, this sucks. You know, like I hate this. Um, but you know, that's what he did. And so the creative director would go down and you would have, and I would spend a day on my creative briefs. And, um, so we put together, um, you know, the creative brief for Dexter and everyone was all really excited because, you know, we had, I had at, at that point, I think I had five Emmy nominations or, or a couple oh, of, wow. you know, nominations. And so, you know, there's always, you know, there's always that distraction to kind of, <laughs> but so we put together a team um, for Dexter and it was uh, me, Mark Bayshore, who I, I believe you still work with. Um, was Yeah. The, yeah. I love Mark. Uh, yeah. Producer. 
I still get in touch. Yeah, I'm Mark's trying to get him on the podcast with it. He's a oh, he's a he's yeah, a hermit. Great. <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't want to he doesn't want to come anyway. That's so funny. So, um, and then we put together a, a team. Uh, Aaron Sarovsky uh, was on it. Um, mm-hmm. Yu Yin. Uh, she's a was a really talented designer who said, "Screw it, I'm going to become a Buddhist monk," and she quit and became a Buddhist monk. Oh, uh, Lindsay Daniels, of course. Um, yeah. Cam Roland. There's a handful of people on that initial thing. So what we would do at Digital Kitchen is the creative director would go in, and they would describe the thing. And what I did is I would send out a direction, but I wasn't specific about what that had to be because this was a brainstorm, right? So. That's the way, to, in my mind, that's the way a creative director should work. You know, like you enable your team to do the best work that they can possibly do, and you chart a path. You know, it's like, here's the whole circle of possibilities. Here's the slice that we're going after. Anything within this slice works. That's great. So then what that did, and the reason why so many successful people came out of Digital Kitchen, so many, it's it's kind of mind-boggling, the people who mm, were in that is, office. Yeah. But um, what you would do then, and this is a structure Paul Mathias set up. It was brilliant. So each designer, after a day or so of brainstorming and working on their own, just leave them alone. Just don't go don't go over their backs. Don't do anything. They would come in, and each designer had to pitch to the entire group, right? Because we had all of our we had all of our creative uh, critiques as a group. So the designers would have to come in, and it's like, hey, you know, like here's my idea. This is why, and then the creative director would kind of get on them and be like, well, how does this work with the brief? You know, like, how does this work? How, what are the things that we're solving with this? You know, and if things were like way out of the brief, weren't working, um, you know, then that had to be remedied. Right. And other designers would chime in and help them. You know, it was, it was, it was a really great way to work. And it's nothing that I've experienced. I've come to LA and I, I, to me, in, in in Los Angeles, uh, creative directors are just glorified art directors. You know, like yeah. they, they 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 don't do creative direction. They come in and like, oh, make this smaller, move this over here, yeah. do this and do that. Dude, don't and get I, me I think started. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's bullshit. And um, so as a creative director, you kind of let them run, right? And then it's your job to be the curator and say, like, yeah, that makes sense. This makes sense. This is good. And mind you, at the time, I was probably working on about six other jobs because uh, Bayshore and I we went through. Um, one year he, he wrote me an email and he goes like, I'm going through what we did the last year. He goes, do you know that between you and I, we won 85 jobs? I'm like, are you kidding me in a year, like 85 jobs. And that's back when that office alone was making about 17, $18 million a year. Yeah. And the entire company was making like 30. So like the other three offices would contribute like 4 million. And then we were like 16 million, you know, 17 million. It was, uh, we had 60 people there. We had two floors, got about 60 people. It was, uh, it was crazy. So, um, so they would come in and and I remember. That was mostly, that was mostly commercials because title sequences are, you know, just a little bit of the work, right? That's the fame. Yeah, that's that's what makes people want to show up for work. And the commercials are what makes people get paid. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. So we um we had our first critique and people would come in and you know, it was clear that a couple of uh, designers just weren't getting it. You know, like they just they were just so far off. Right. It's like this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't work with the, the brief. And, you know, sometimes then people then decide, do I want to kind of um, bow out of this project? Is it something that I'm not into? Or, you know, do I want to kind of redo my thinking and come back? 
And at that point, you know, Dexter was only a $50,000 um, job and we were being hammered so hard on our development costs um, because as a creative director, I was in charge of budgets too, which um, right. was, was really hard. And um, so, you know, we peeled a couple of people off and it was down to um, me and Cam Roland and Lindsay Daniels mm-hmm. um, doing the creative development. And uh, Cam was developing this incredible, I mean, incredible designer. The guy's drawings are amazing. And I know he's not like a um, a name that a lot of people know in this industry, but he's he's a creative director for Kohler right now. Um, but man, he drew this mural Um that was like, it was about uh, diamond mining in, in Africa. And it was like this face and these snakes and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, you know, what would be so cool is if the Dexter story was told through a mural like this, you know? And so mm-hmm. we, that's what, that's the direction he was developing. And Lindsay came in with a, with a um, blood splatter. It was like, oh, just blood splatter. And it was beautiful. It was just like, you know, red and white and just like really beautiful. And I was just like, yeah, it is beautiful, man, but it has nothing to do with what they wanted us to do. <laughs> and I could tell, you know, like, you know, when you tell people that, you know, they get a little deflated. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, so Lindsay was like, well, this other idea, it's like his, uh, you know, his morning routine. And I remember like it was, I remember like it was yesterday, Bayshore points his finger. He goes, that's it. And then we were like, okay, so let's develop that. And so uh, Lindsay put together these really beautiful boards um, for the morning routine. And I think, the original idea was that he's crazy putting together like he, you know, like the way he puts together his breakfast is violent, you know, like he makes his coffee in a really violent way. And uh, mm-hmm. to me, it struck me as being super hokey. You know, it's like, ah, you know, like, boy, I don't know him smashing stuff and things like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so again, through our critiques, we, we came up with, at the time I was really into macro photography and we came up with, um, this idea that what I used in the treatment, you know, it was what I said in the treatment is like, you see a flower blooming and you recognize it as a beautiful thing. Right. But if you see it close up, like really close up and time-lapse, what you're going to see is the petals ripping against one another. And something that from a distance appears to be really beautiful is becomes really violent, really violent and scary. And so that's, that was kind of, where we headed with that title sequence it's like the morning routine but depicted in such a way where all the normalcy of what you do is you're seeing the violent undercurrent in everything you do that's incredibly normal and um needless to say the 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 um you know the the clients uh, the show show developers for dexter loved it they're just like yeah that's it like do that and it was like great and so i put together um an animatic, you know, and I was working on it and um, they wanted me to put in just like so many other things. It's like, I have his exercise bike and, you know, like he does this and in Ho- and in uh, Miami, it's really humid. So show, you know, like drips on the, on the condensation on the windows. And so we went through this whole second phase of development that was just kind of nuts. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And we kind of whittled it back down to its essence. And that was that was all done under that fifty k budget that you mentioned, and and the timeline was, I'm sure, compressed or was it not? Yeah, very compressed. Um, and then I said something um, that almost completely killed the job. And um, I was when I was working with the clients, I described something 
as like crime scene photography, you know, and my, my, and this is working with writers compared with working with directors, like writers take a lot of things literally. And what I meant is I saw this picture of a windowsill and it was just a windowsill, you know, it was just a windowsill. But then if you realize that's the windowsill that Martin Luther King's killer shot him from, all of a sudden that windowsill became sinister. And that's the power of crime scene photography. That's the power of evidence, right? And that's what I was getting at. I was getting at the juxtaposition and the recontextualizing normal stuff to make it seem sinister. And they're like, oh, they were like, crime scene tape? No, we don't want to see it. And I was like, no, 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 no. And then... um. They were just like, I don't think they're understanding what we want to make. And I'm like, no, I'm just bad with words, you know. So uh Jonathan Golden was just like, hey guys, guys, let's quit, let's quit harping on Eric and just like let him do his thing. We know that we really love every the work that he's done in the past and we're liking this so much. And I think right now we're just kind of getting two in our head. So let's just let's just tell him to do the job. And that's that. And so they it was like, Yeah, okay, you're right. And so um because we had no budget and it was shot on 35 millimeter film which is you know isn't done anymore i think dexter was the last film title sequence to win an emmy anyway so um so (laughs) because we had no budget we went out to the dexter set we flew out to los angeles and we went to the dexter set and Mm. um at that point it was just me and uh colin davis the producer Lindsay daniels Mm. was on another job that I think took much more of her attention because she was a little bit more involved with it. She was living in New York at the time and it was shot in New York and it was called the path to nine 11, um, which was a pretty remember, title sequence for an incredibly flawed TV show. Like mm-hmm. it turned out that the people who made it were like these hardcore right wingers. Um, oh, and okay. it was just, it was just a, it was a terrible but thing. The, the title sequence. I remember that one. That was pretty cool too. Yeah, it was good. And so, um, so I went out and I I shot uh, Dexter, um, and um, so you know, all the shots and all, all the shots in the sequence are shot on set, or is there any any uh, stock stuff that you guys kind of had to leave in? Uh, no stock stuff, but what happened <laughs> is, um, so I went out, we shot everything. Um, I decided that I wanted to be Sam Peckinpah, right? And so I said, you know, when he cuts himself shaving, it's going to be real like let's really do it so because i have the yeah. same coloring as is uh is, is michael Hall, i took a fucking i took a i took a uh razor blade and slit my throat and uh it just didn't look that good it did look awful right so i have this sequence i'll send it to you i have the sequence of me slitting my throat over and over again trying to get blood out of it but it just didn't bleed well so we ended up using we ended up using the stand and i had this like huge gash on my neck i was just like oh shit. yeah i want to see that. um <laughs> Yeah. And that's why I called my my speak when I spoke about Dexter, I called it I slit my throat and nobody cared. The art of title sequence. Right. Um, because it, 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 it just didn't it looked stupid. And so um so I uh I uh, we used the fake blood and, and stuff and um and uh so I shot it, I came back and you know, me and Josh are gonna edit it. And what had happened is because we were still we were super busy, um Josh had to spend his days editing an American family insurance campaign. And I was just like, Oh, come on, you know, come on. And, um, they were just like, no, you know, this Dexter's going to lose money. It's going to lose money. You know, we got to make money. You can't just blah. 
so I started editing Dexter um, at night. So I would work all day, and then and then Josh would finish his edit session, just completely spent. And I would I would come in um, at six or seven o'clock at night and edit until two in the morning. Um, and then to your question about the other um, stuff, we had a phantom camera that um, was on loan from the, um, Vision Research. And we just had it sitting around the office and they were just like, hey, take this, you know, do whatever you want to this camera. We're developing these high speed cameras, do whatever you want. And so I had um, I had two mm. little Coda lights, right? And a little tabletop set up. And I by my absolutely by myself. And when I say by myself, I don't mean I, I mean like nobody else was in the building. I was cracking an egg with one hand and I had the trigger of the camera with the other hand and I would film it. And then Get I would take, uh, take the really? drive. Yeah, I would take the drive. I'd put it in my Avid and go, well, that sucked. And I would go back down. I would crack another egg and put it in there. So the eggs, oh, all the high man. speed stuff, the eggs, the um, the um, <laughs> coffee grinder, um, the coffee grinder, a bunch of that yeah. stuff. Yeah, it was done with one hand on the trigger for the Phantom and the other hand operating the prop. Oh, you know? and, and how did you light it? How did you light it? Do you have lights around it? Did you? I had well, they were called total lights, and they were just like glorified. Um, uh, I don't even know what kind of bulb would be using, but they were the ones that were really, 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 really hot. Like you touched them, you'd burn yourself. Um, mm. But so it was like hot lights, and I would just do that. And you know, because of, I studied <laughs> film and I, you know, studied photography, I knew how to light to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, so I did all that with the camera with one hand and would put it back in my edit. And then, um, I would leave and I would leave notes for Josh. And before Josh's clients came in, Josh would, you know, attack the timeline and he'd start re-editing stuff. And we were working to a completely different piece of music. We were working to, um, oh, I forget the name of the band, but it was like this cool piece of music because there was no music yet, you know, for the piece. And, um, I, I remember I would yeah, I, I, I remember. I think that that piece of music was from Exploding Plastics. More yes, power yes, to yes, you. Because yes, yes. I, I remember uh, reading. Something about, about Girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember, I remember reading about all that on part of the title. And I went and listened to right. the track. And if, to this day, Eric, I shit you not, I'm trying to find a project where I can slug that in and use that track to edit to. Because it's really, <laughs> it's really good. It's a good, good. track. It, I think yeah, it's, that's a great. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Well, so the funny thing was, is I would come in, I would do my edits, I would lock my track, you know, and then Josh would come in and he would do his edits and he would lock his track, and um, you know, it was great. You know, both of us were kind of double teaming it, and uh, and then you know, finally, um, you know, we had a piece together, and then the 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 show de show developers were just like, oh, hey, well, we have a new piece of music. And they sent us that piece of music. And I would have to say the first time I heard it, I was so depressed. I'm like, oh my God. Like, what am I going to do with this? You know, like, what am I going to do with this? Because we had this really badass edit going on. And then we get this thing, which I called, it was kind of like a, kind of like a soft shoe dance. You know, it's a piece of music that they have now. It's like, do, 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 do. You know, I, I was like, this is so lame, man. I can't believe it. So I was really depressed. And at that point, um, Paul Matthias was like, yeah, screw it. Just send the footage back and say, forget it. And I was like, well, let me, let me, let me sit with it for a night. 
you know, let, let me sit with it for a night. And I, man, I tell you, I got rid of that, that exploding plastics track and I started cutting to this new track and I was like, Oh, I get it. Like I get it. And through the course of that evening, it was just like, mm. holy moly. I mean, this is this is a way better piece of music. Completely unexpected. Yeah. Completely unexpected. And so contrast, I started cutting right? it together. Yeah. What's that? Because of the contrast of of the footage into the uh, the song. Right? Oh, absolutely. And so what I was doing is because there was like a little bit of, I don't know, the song to me was kind of loose. So I started doing cuts that were just like off of the beat. It's something I never really did. I was always like really kind of like on the beat guy, you know, cutting to waveforms and just like, right? right. So I started kind of playing around with it and I'm like, oh my God, this is like way cooler. And I had this epiphany and I was so excited. And, and you know, it's, it's the client's right sometimes, you know, like absolutely yeah. 100%. You can be completely blind and the client will come up with an idea that you think is completely harebrained. But if you give it some chance, um, it could be better than what you did. And in this case, I think it was. Um, yeah. And so I put this cut together. And um, at that point, Josh actually was done working on the um, American Family Insurance campaign so he could actually participate. <laughs> and then, you know, we just they had some revisions that we did. And then the, the piece was pretty much cut together and done. But the funny thing about that was. So just me and Josh, you know, like did, doing the entire title sequence. Um, no designers at that point at all um, working right. on it. Nobody, nobody gave a shit about it. Like nobody thought it was cool. Like and in, in all of digital kitchen, no matter what they say now, nobody thought it was cool. And so um, we were, we were putting it together. And what I used to do as an editor is I was always, I'd always put my temp titles in bright red. So they knew it was a temp title, right? It's like, here's a temporary <laughs> title and it's temporary because it's bright red and like no one in their right mind would have a bright red title. Like in the, and so, um, you know, I got that, I called Lindsay back up and she was just like, oh, I'm on this other job. And I was like, can you just do a type treatment? You know, like, this is where we're going with it. And I had this, I came up with this really cool idea of Dexter, like the word Dexter upside down and right side mm -hmm. up is almost the exact same thing. And I was like, mm -hmm. wow, Michael, you know, his, his character and yeah. the letter forms are, are exactly the same, but opposite, like, you know, yeah. and I thought that was really cool. So we did that. But they already had their logo made uh, through um, their promotions team, which I, I think is really an awful um, thing to have happen to designers. You know, it's like, hey, we made our logo. It's like, yeah, it looks like an oil can. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so we, we cut that together and um, uh, they loved the red titles. They're like, why are you changing the titles? We really liked we really like that din condensed bright red title. And I was like, really? OK, shit. Um, <laughs> And so uh, we we did it. We shipped it off. Um, really, really didn't think much of it. Uh, we were proud of it. You know, like Josh and I were really proud of it. Colin Davis was really proud of it. Uh, but internally at Digital Kitchen, like nobody thought it was very good. Like everyone kind of slagged on it, you know. And then was that because was that because it wasn't it had no you know design to yes, it? Was, yeah. was just yeah? Was that yeah. the reason? Uh -huh. Exactly. It was actually referred to as not being a design piece. And I was like. I don't give a shit if it's not a design piece. It's perfect for the show. You know what I mean? It's like, who cares? Right. That's, that was because you know, I was cocky and, and uh, opinionated. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it, it, um, the reception, once it aired, the reception was just like, oh, that is so great. And then all of a sudden, everyone else was just like, yeah, it's so great. And Josh and I were kind of rolling our eyes. We're just like, are you kidding me? 
<laughs> like nobody gave two shits about it. They were actually telling us to not work on it anymore. Um, and, so, <laughs> and so then, you know, it, it kind of had a life of its own and um, it was nominated for an Emmy and it was nominated for an Emmy. And so was path to nine 11. Like, so both of those title sequences that we worked on were nominated for Emmy. Yeah. Yeah. And because path to nine 11 was much more of a traditional um title sequence with design and nuance and all this sort of stuff. And, and, and Dexter was pretty much a brute piece, right? It's kind of mm. blunt and brute. Did 9-11 What's that? Did 9-11 win? No, 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 no. All the momentum internally at digital kitchen was about. Ah, and so ah, me yeah. and Josh and Colin Davis were the only three from the Dexter team that went out, um, and then uh, the path to 9-11, I think, I don't know, I think it was like a team of like 12 people went out for the path to 9-11. Right. And it was kind of uncomfortable being nominated against, you know, basically your boss, you know, and, and people that you yeah. work with and stuff. And um, everybody thought, you know, path to 9-11 stood a better chance. And I thought, well, yeah, it's pretty, you know, but... Turns out, you know, they're like, and the winner is Dexter. We were really floored. You know, we're just like, oh my God. And so, uh, yeah, we went up and we we got the, um, and, and Lindsay, you know, she was sitting with the Path to 9-11 people, um, but then she she ran up too. And so we were, you know, we got the, we got the, um, got the award, um, the the Emmy award, uh, which was really great. And that, that, you know, that exploded. I mean, I started getting butter commercial, you know, like Lurpak, you know, like Lurpak did all that really great stuff with Dougal Wilson. They're like, we should get the Dexter guy to do a Lurpak commercial. <laughs> and, and that was like a disaster. It's like, I didn't really understand, you know, like I do now what, um, especially British agencies, you know, mm. like working for British agencies as opposed to American agencies, British agencies, man, they're really, they really don't tell you what they want. You know, they're just like, you know, got a butter commercial. We want you to pay reverence to the food. I'm like, anything else? They're like, no. I'm like, okay. And then I'm like American are like, you know, the first shot is this. The second shot is this. The third yeah, shot is this. Yeah, you know, it needs yeah, to be this. Yeah. This person's going to be, you know, and, and they get really prescriptive and the uh, British people aren't. So I, I kind of, um, you know, I didn't have a very successful, uh, I, I was really off, um, off mark with that right. um i didn't i didn't really do a good job with that but you know bridgestone tires would show up and then I, then i got this campaign to do a coors commercial coors light they're like yeah you know and it was always like at that point it was like make the dexter version of you know fill in the blank and this was like make the dexter of beer and i was like okay and so that was that, and I, that was one of the i remember now that was one of the treatments you sent me when we first exchange emails that was one of the treatments oh, you sent me for Coors Light and actually yeah. that's kind of cool that I'm, that I'm uh, talking about that again because I wanted to ask you this going back a bit I wanted to kind of ask you about because I like I said I remember the distinct way uh, that he, uh, I think it was you probably I'm guessing uh, wrote those treatments the writing on those treatments was very emotional and after I worked with DK and after I got those treatments from you, I went on to work with all of these other studios over the years. And there's never been a deck. There's never been a treatment. There's never been a presentation that's as well written as those. And I'll tell you what I think. And then you can kind of tell me if that makes sense to you. Because the writing on those is much more about the way that the spot or the sequence will feel. 
It's about the feelings mm-hmm. that it's starting to convey the mood of it. So it's written in a way it's almost like you're reading a book. It's almost like you're reading prose. You know, it's not descriptive. It's not about we do this here, then we cut to this, and this this will happen, and then and that's that's just plot. We don't care about plot. Right. We want to tell you what this is gonna this is gonna change the fucking world. This is gonna right. be this is gonna be a Black Sabbath album. This is what we're working on. Um, right. So you know that's what I got, and I've I've you can ask my producer this because when I started working with my producer as a director and as a studio, the first treatment I had to do I. That was my writing. I, I, I mm-hmm. emulated that style of writing. And my director, my producer was like, what the fuck? This is no, so strange. It, it, is it because you're Portuguese? And I was like, no, I got, I learned this from the best. <laughs> and he was, he was put off a little bit, but now it totally, in his, I'm sure he's going to listen to this. He totally understands what I'm going for. And he loves it. And it, uh, most importantly, it works with clients. Because I don't, you know, when I'm presenting online, we'll presume I'm not reading from a text. I'm just, I'm just talking. But I've done the homework because right. I've, I've written that right. out, and I've written yeah. in a way because I know, I know the plot. I know the, I know the beats of the sequence. I know what it's gonna do, shot to shot. But everyone the, does uh, exactly because you're fucking showing it. So you can, right. you should just take the opportunity to tell people what it's supposed to be doing in a subconscious way. Um, does well, that make sense to you? That's all. Yeah, absolutely does, and I'm 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 kind of humbled that you um, noticed that because when I do treatments now, I I do all of my layout, I do all of the writing, I do all of the artwork, I do I do everything. Like the only thing that I need when I do a treatment is a somebody to do shooting boards, you know, because right. I I just you know if I if I drew I, all my credibility would be lost if they saw my drawing, you know, they'd be like what. <laughs> But um, but that's that's the job, you know. That's you know, getting back to it. That's the job of an editor. An editor is supposed to sit there and look at something objectively and put their mind in the in the seat of the viewer. And that's I think exactly that's right. what that style of writing does. You know, it, it's like, okay, you know, yeah, you're going to open on a close up of a beer can, but really, what is it? You know, why? You know, yeah. like what? How, how is it? What is that shot going to make people feel like? You know, like what is that going to do? Yeah. It's a, it's a hard thing to, um, because I, I do a lot of stuff for Dyson, you know, and um, I would have to say that my writing for Dyson is very prescriptive you know, compared to what you're talking about. And yeah. Di- the Dyson pieces for me are really hard to do because Dyson is very prescriptive about the way that they need all their spots, you know, mm-hmm. and, and when they, when they send me their, you know, kind of sketches, they mean that shot. They don't mean, oh, we need some sort of close up. They mean we need the overhead recorder angle right, of this right. machine like this. And so my writing for that is very, very much just like you say, just plot based where my writing for everything else, it, you know, kind of goes off and, um, you know, and, 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 and it kind of, it kind of conveys a, a bigger emotional impact of the piece. And I, I, I do think that you're right. I think, I think that's because it's coming from, in your case, uh, a musician first, editor second, and from a filmmaking based company like DK, where, because like you said, uh, you uh, had the designers, the producers, everybody come into the, uh, the edit bay and mm-hmm. you would show the work and critique. And when you're cutting stuff together, 
when you're editing stuff, you're looking for what does this feel like? Because it's about pacing. Pacing is about feeling and all those things. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's, I think that's where it, you guys got this thing of, and I, I see it now. Again, <laughs> I keep talking about this and people must be really tired of me listening to me, but you're looking at title sequences now and you, 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 you can get into that too because you were a, a governor for the Emmy board for uh, quite a bit of time. And title sequences for the longest time now have felt like they're, like I said, plot-based and, and perspective and yeah. doesn't really connect emotionally and it's not really trying to say anything. And it's... Um, I, I, I think those were, and it's kind of funny, but also maybe makes a lot of sense that when you guys did Dexter and it felt so different and then later became iconic and you got jobs off of it and everybody loved it and they got awards and it became this distinct title sequence because it didn't have design, because it started off in a different way, because the process of making it was different from everything else. You know what I mean? Maybe we mm -hmm. kind of need to go back to that. What? Why don't we? I'm just gonna say, why don't we just fire every designer on title sequence and just have filmmakers do it and musicians do it? <laughs> well, you've been doing the you've been doing um, titles long enough, and well, and and to be honest with you, um, that's another thing that I would have to say was uh, Paul's brilliance is Paul would be like, hey, this guy's a great photographer. I bet you he would be a good designer. And he would hire yeah. somebody who wasn't a designer. He hired all non-designers for a lot of things. I mean, took a took a chance on Danny Yon and look where that turned out. You know, it was yeah. But, you know, and and Paul really, you know, you know, people have very mixed views on working with him. I understand the way he thinks um, because I work so closely with him. But the people who didn't work closely with him um, just didn't understand the way that he communicates, um, and so they were just really off put. You know, he he just. You know, he, um, the way I communicate is I'll say A plus B plus D plus F, therefore this, right? You know, all of these things lead to this conclusion. And I, I follow up with the conclusion. Paul starts with the conclusion. This is what it has to be because of this. And I think when people hear that first, this is what it has to be. And I'm paraphrasing. Um, they get really off put. And I think the way I was communicating is I would ease people into my thought process, and they would, and if, I, if they agreed with the premise, then they can agree with the conclusion. Is that and that's still kind of the way that I, I kind of operate. This is the way I work. But it was funny because I would be taking Paul through my thought process, and he'd be like, "Get to the point. Just get to the point." And um, it was really interesting because he starts at the point and then backs it up with his rationale. I start with my rationale and I end with the uh, conclusion. So those were, I think, um, people are a little less inclined to um, warm up to that, to receive those types of messages. Um, but what did you just say that made me talk about that? Because I, 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 maybe that's because you, I mentioned that you were a governor at the Emmys, and I was talking about uh, title sequences right now and how they. Oh, and that Paul hired non-designers all the time. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah, he yeah, would. Yeah, he would. Yeah, um, yeah. He would. He would hire talented people and just see what they wanted, what they were going to do. You know. Yeah. But uh, yeah. the title sequence. I mean, I think one thing worth um, discussing is the state of title sequences. I mean, you know, like when I started in the titles, again, it was like right when HBO and FX and all these places started original programming, so there wasn't that much. Yeah. You know. 
you could you could probably follow these shows right now there's just such a glut i mean i can't keep up with it there's just too much tv too much yeah. tv too many title sequences and i think the entire thing has been diluted and i think with that dilution there's been um things that just really aren't that special anymore you know because there's so much of it i think yeah. things have and and also too then then it's just like just like the the churn and burn you know you got to make a lot of title sequences but what i've noticed and the reason i kind of left the emmys i'm not even i'm not even an emmy member any longer i don't even I, you know because of the rules that i helped craft i've mm -hmm. eliminated myself as being a member of the emmys um because i'm no longer making titles you know right. and what i didn't want was people who weren't in the industry being in our in our executive committee or in our peer group because they're not in part of the industry <laughs> and lo and behold i'm not part of the industry and i get myself kicked out because of the rules that i helped create which is fine that's what it should be um yeah. But what I've noticed is that fewer and fewer companies and fewer and fewer people, and it's like the same over and over again, are kind of nominated for the Emmys. And I think with that, you get kind of a homogenization of work, you know, and I think the work is kind of homogenized. And, you know, back when I was the governor, I would be having people fly in from England. I would have people coming in from all over the world, um, and there would be a person who would be nominated for an Emmy, you know, like one year and I would never hear of them again, which was kind of mm -hmm. cool, you know, or I've never heard like, who the hell are these guys, you know, from, you know, nowhere in, in, you know, the UK, you know, like they did a great title sequence. Who the hell are these guys? And they would yeah. come and um, you meet them and they're like super cool, you know, and you really like, like the guys and you create a, kind of create friends, you know, but then there's been years where there's been two companies that get, all of the nominations and yeah. it's like the same six people and you're like well that's no fun yeah you know it seems it seems it kind of lost its lost its luster and uh, and the thing is you know like you know the whole idea of like early adapters you know like where are all of the people who really want to push the boundaries working and it used to be motion design you know like that's that was like the new thing man like back when cosa was after effects four you know um, that was like the new frontier, like stuff that you've never seen before. Right. And that attracted a certain type of people. And now that it's matured and has become almost predictable, that attracts a different type of person. And that's, that's the way I, that's the way I that's see right. what's happened to motion design title sequence and everything is it it's, it's so mature. It's like a safe career choice. Um, back in the day, it was more like being in a rock band, but now it's like a really safe nine to five career choice. And, um, you know, you can yeah. do that, and have, you know, like your life and, and it's just like, wow, where's the, where's the dysfunctional magic, you know, that it used to be. Right. And I think like that's happening now with apps or that's happening yeah. with AI, you know, that's happening with a lot yeah. of different things. Like those people still exist, but fewer of them are kind of diving into what I would call an incredibly mature, um, industry right now. Well, Yeah. But I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, you know, I, I try to look on the flip side and what I can see is in an ocean of sameness, if you have a wildcard idea, an idea that's different um, from its inception, uh, well, the chances that your idea is going to make it to the end are really slim. I mean, it seems like they're slimmer and slimmer nowadays, but if they do make it to the end, it's going to be very noticeable that your sequence is different from all the other ones that kind of feel the same and there's a there's a couple of people doing that there's a couple of studios trying to do it and people like you know mark for 
definitely trying yeah. to do it. And he's been working with Anthony Vitaliano, who I, I think you know as well. He used to work at DK. Of course I know Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. And I so didn't those know those guys, were working together. Yeah, they are. They, I had Anthony on the podcast too earlier. And he's uh, we talked about this idea of uh, it's hard, but we we owe it to ourselves to try and break away from from the sameness and try and sell the, the different ideas and the process of getting to those different outputs, you know, stuff like they, they did something for Gaslit, um, the show, but, um, mm-hmm. where he, he's just, he's just did a practical shoot off of a, a TV and just distorted image to get to the results that he wanted, but distorting typography off of a TV. Uh, so that's, the process itself is different enough to make it look different. Um, and some of the others, some of the stuff that I pitched on with Mark, they're, they're always trying to go for something that's Mark and Katrina, always trying to go for something oh, different. So there's, you know, there's people trying. Oh, you sure. try. and, and I have to say, knowing Mark, I mean, my uh, working relationship with Mark, I don't work with him any longer, but my working relationship with Mark started. Uh, Christ, better part of 20 years ago. So oh, Mark's always been an outlier. He's, he was, he was like an, he was like an editor who became an EP. You know what I mean? He's, he's always an outlier. He's, 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 he's a guy who always had incredibly, he was, he was more of a creative than he was a producer. You know, you mm. think executive producers, you think are really kind of sales focused. Mark was always kind of inwardly kind of culture focused. Yeah. And um his ideas and he's such a chill guy, you know, he's 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 wonderful. He's one of my favorite people as as is Anthony too. Anthony, you know, like we hired him straight out of uh school and he was um you know, he was kind of a standout you know, just like just like Josh, you know, he had that kind of like you know, everything is awesome gung-ho attitude and Anthony was so yeah. is so humble, you know, he's so um He's so humble, you know, he's, he's a, he's a, he was one of the standout, you know, people, especially in our Chicago office. He's a, you know, he's a local Chicago guy. And um, that's great that those two are working together. That's, that's amazing. I I guess I shouldn't be surprised. I just, I just have lost touch. You know, I'm in such a different industry in a different world right now. Well, that's, that's kind of a a nice segue to the question of what are you up to these days? I know you're directing live action, you're doing commercials and you're in Los Angeles now, right? Still? Yep, yep. Yeah, I love it here. Well, it's kind of funny. It's it's kind of a weird route. So after I left DK, I went to Ewan Company and did film titles for about a year. Yeah. Um, and that really wore me out. That's a hard business to be in. <laughs> and, you know, I was working, uh, there was one title sequence that I worked 125 hours a week for five weeks straight. And uh, it was like the thing where I was like, I can't do it. And, and, that was happening at the same time where I was just like, you know, my, I really belong more in live action. You know, it's like, I do not belong. I do not belong uh, sitting in a edit suite. Um, I do not belong um, trying to help designers develop stuff because like, again, out here, it was a real culture clash because I was a creative director at digital kitchen working the way I thought creative directors should work. And then I, I came out to Los Angeles being expected to be an art director. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't tell anyone what to do or how to do it, you know? And that might sound really funny, but I just don't, you know? I expect that they have talents and they have gifts 
and I'm guiding them towards the um yeah. towards the the goal of this job and I've never looked at my position even as a director as a creative director I've never looked at it as hierarchy I always looked at it as like just different roles that people play this is my role it's no more important than your role maybe I'm talking to the clients I have a gift for um communication I have a gift for talent I have a gift for writing you know like that's what I do um and you have a gift you know, whatever that designer is, have a gift for making unbelievably great imagery and coming up with concepts, visual concepts, you know, like you communicate visually, I communicate verbally, right? And I never looked at it as being a hierarchy. Like, oh, I think a lot of people do, you know, and there's, there's it, it's, it's really, there's, that's kind of the dysfunction for me in this industry. It's like, well, it was my boards that they picked. So why am I not the creative director? It's like, well, because you can't really talk to clients yet. And I'm not really sure that you can sell your idea. You know, yeah. you 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 communicate visually wonderfully, but verbally you're not there. And you're you're probably, you know, if it wasn't for me, your job, your your boards wouldn't have won. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I'll just yeah. say yeah. that. Yeah. So anyway, then I then I had this opportunity to work with um people I graduated from college with um at Logan. It's you know, Ben Conrad and Alexei Tylovich. Um, and they were just like, Hey, Eric, we need like a live action slash creative director guy. And I'm like, well, that's me, you know, that's, I want to do live action. So that's, that's me. So, um, I worked there and, and, uh, I was a creative director who directed, um, basically my main focus was creative direction. So whenever there was a live action job that came in, that kind of fell into that didn't, didn't pertain to any one of the directors on their rosters, very specific reels. They're like, we got this thing. It's going to be live action. Um, and, you know, and since you're kind of at this point, a jack of all trades, go for it. And I could, you know, I could go through a, a bunch of different uh, genres. You know, I was really, I had no specific style, much mm -hmm. to my benefit. Because I used to do like liquids. I did the Dexter thing. I did, you know, this stuff. And then I did, you know, now what I do now is uh, really heavy production design, stagecraft. I do everything in camera. Um, I do everything on sets. If I want to transition, I try to see if I can make it happen with my set pieces, like how they move. Mm -hmm. I try to do everything, like a camera move, everything on set. And uh, that started at Logan, where Adobe came to us and they were like, hey, we want to do a, we want to do a spot about um, this thing that allowed you to put signatures on a PDF. I forget what it was called, like AccuSign or some really right. dork worky name like that and they came to us with this idea and it was like yeah we're going to just shoot it all on green screen and we're going to have you know the background of the green screen is going to be different locations throughout the world and then we'll have you know the person standing in front of the green screen doing this and i was like well that's an awful idea that is like <laughs> the, seriously, the worst idea i can imagine so it was one of those jobs where it's like if they want to do that i don't care if i don't get the job because it's awful right and right. i said i think I'm not going to do your idea. I'm going to come up with something that I think is kind of cool. And so what I came up with, because the, the 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 prose was so, you can sign in a boat, you can sign on a goat, you know, you can sign on a mountaintop or even blah, blah, blah. You know, it was like Dr. Seuss. And I was like, well, why not, why not do that? And then come up with like really nice little live action vignettes, you know? And so I put this thing together where was like, hey, I'm going to create a mountainscape, but it's all going to be done on set, you know, and it's going to be kind of like a playful, you know, illustrative mountainscape with a guy dressed like, an, like as, as he's climbing a mountain and then I'll get a hot air balloon and, you know, we'll suspend that. And I was really using a, 
I was really using my limitations as a creative thing. You know, it's like, well, let's just hang a basket from the ceiling and um, have a fan blowing up this cray paper um, flames, right? Like that. And just make it be real playful because the, the prose is real playful. And um, so I did that. And just like Dexter, it was one of those pieces where all of a sudden people started coming to me for that. Like, yeah, we want that. We want that thing you did for Adobe. And I was like, well, I love doing it. And I, I don't like sitting in a, in a studio and I definitely don't like looking over the shoulder of CG, you know, guys. Um, Cause that's a whole nother, a whole different experience. You're right. Yeah. And um, yeah. I don't like doing a lot of things, but I do love working with production designers and I do love working with cinematographers and I do love being on set and running around and seeing everybody walk onto stage for the first time and, and see all these beautiful things that we built and stuff like that. And that's what really turns me on now. That's what I'm doing. And, um, and, you know, commercial is where the money is for that kind of thing. Right. No, no one else yeah, is going to pay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like my budgets are like a million and a half dollars, you know, for some of these jobs. Right. And multiple very, spots. Very but, you know. Well, where I was working, when I was working at Logan, um, I kept on pitching against this company called MPC, which I've never heard of in my life. You know, it's like MPC, who, who the hell are these guys, who these guys think they are <laughs> pitching against me. Right. And so I, I, I beat them on a handful of um, jobs. And next thing you know, this company called MPC calls me up and wants me to work for them. And I was like, all right, well, what's up with that? Right. And so um, they, when I met with the, the, the general manager and they said, Hey, we're, we're starting a creative division, you know, for MPC. And I guess it, it, it already kind of had existed MPC creative, it was called, but um, they weren't really utilizing it to what it could have been. And so what they hired, hired me and the guy named Alan Bibby in New York um, to do was to start like a hybrid production agency where we were going to be focused on direct to client work. And we were going to, you know, like our, our rationale was, if we talk to the clients, we can come up with the production methodology within their budget and really, really make best use of all of that, that resource, right? So a lot right. of times you'll get like, you'll get an agency who's, who's not in charge of production, right? You'll get an agency and they're like, we want to do this for a hundred grand. And you're like, you can't, you know, you're going to do like a really good idea that's underfunded and it's going to be a disaster. So right. by working directly with a client and they're like, well, we have a hundred thousand dollars. What can we do? Well, here's what you can do for $100,000. That could be amazing, right? And so you work within that parameter to do the right. best thing within that parameter. And that's what MPC Creative was supposed to be. Right. Um, and so we we did that and we had a really good run, you know, for about four years. But uh, unbeknownst to us, the parent company, Technicolor, was going bankrupt, like broke. I don't right. know if they're going bankrupt. I should say that their stock price went from about $500 a share and it's down to around $0.08 cents a share right now. So that means a lot, you know, to the, the business thing. And, you know, unbeknownst to us, we had no idea what that meant for us, but it had really dire ramifications. They were, they just, at one point, they just cut off all essential, um, you know, capabilities. And they were like, we make, we do CG, we make effects for movies, which they do like better than anybody at that time. And we don't, we're not going to be a hybrid agency. So they, they basically canned my division but what that helped me do is i and they, they they treated me really well i mean i would have to say that um management there was really in a in a in a tough spot but they treated me really well um you know they were very generous with my severance package and all this sort of stuff and not only that is i said look i've been working for the last three years on developing ties to clients you know and 
you know, if you're dissolving this division, what's going to happen to the clients? And they said, take them. And so I was like, Are you kidding? So then I, I went to, you know, like as far as a freelancer, I went freelance. I started my own little company. Um, I couldn't be a production company just because I didn't have insurance and, and money or anything like that. So right. I ran through other production companies. But um, yeah, I walked with clients and was able for two years to still yeah, service great. those clients. That's how I became yeah. a, a, a freelancer. And then what I'm doing now is I met with these people from New York. Um, it was an introduction by Alan Bibby. Um, and they're called green card productions. And I didn't really think much about it. You know, I was like, okay, you know, it's like another production company. I'll meet with them, hopped on the phone with them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's two people who run the company. It's, uh, Emily Wiedemann and, and Chaz Carfora. And I got on the phone with them and I just loved them. You know, I was just like, I like these people. And to me, that's 90% of it. You know, that's yeah. 90% of it. I just, yeah. I just loved talking to them and they, um, they got me a couple jobs and I met with them in person and they were so chill. Um, I'm like, this is kind of great. You know, this is kind of great for me because I think it's more important to work with people who believe in you because then, then you have creative confidence and you can kind of unleash what you, it is you do. Right. Yeah. So that's what they did for me. You know, like I could have gone, I could probably be like a really low, you know, priority loser on like a bigger production company's roster. Yeah. Or I could be with a company where I know the people who own it and they like me, you know, and they, they take stock into me doing my best work. So that's what I did. And that's what I'm working with now. I, I work with a handful of companies. I work with um, green card. I work with spears and arrows. I work with uh, another company called golden. Um, you know, like those, those are the people who call me most often. Um, every once in a while, I'll kind of have an outlier call me to do jobs, but right. through green card, they were like, Hey, we want you to, you know, pitch on this uh, fidelity thing. And they really liked your Adobe piece. And I'm like, Oh, that's great. You know, because I really like my Adobe piece too. And so I, I pitched, um, to fidelity. Um, and they're like, yeah, we want to do everything kind of live action on stage. And I was like, Oh, that's wonderful. So I put together a treatment and, uh, you know, won the job. And I've been doing their commercials now for over three years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they're, they're you know, like at, at some time, and I'm not exactly sure how long that's going to last because it's a campaign, you know, and campaigns change right. over the years, right. but they, um, they hired me and I, um, I, um, I think I've done, like I, I was doing at one point about six spots a year for them. And Fidelity does, you know, like extreme lifestyle, you know, which, which is, it's all beautifully shot. It's all really great. But if you turn the audio off and you look at most lifestyle spots, you know, there could be any product, you know, like yeah, you have no idea. Exactly. It's not really as ownable. Yeah. And so what Fidelity, they kind of had me do something that was really kind of unique to them. And we, we established like a visual language on these campaigns and stuff. And um, yeah, so far it's been great. And so I, I do everything in camera. I um, have a really a little bit that I need to do in post, sometimes a little bit more like adding backgrounds and stuff like that. Right. Uh, sometimes we do everything in camera, you know, sometimes there's just flame work and a little bit of color grading that we have left to do. So that's what I do now. And um, that's amazing, man. I mean, that's good for you. I'm really happy that you, uh, I, 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 I can feel that you're doing what you love and doing it for, with people that you really like so that's kind of what what we want to do right now at uh, later stages of our of our lives i guess um so 
dude, it's oh, been speak for yourself. I'm a young buck. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm still 27 in my mind. <laughs> no, but I, I just I just finished I just finished working with Henry Winkler. Just um, like a, I know a, a I saw that on, on your socials. And that's right. You, you, how was that? That must have been great. Um, Henry Winkler is. And look, and I'm not starstruck. I've worked with a lot of stars, you know, like I'm not right. really starstruck. I've worked at the Emmys, you know, like I've, you know, been around famous people yeah, and yeah. stars for years and years and years. I'm not starstruck. Yeah. Henry Winkler is one of the nicest people in the entire world. And I'm not just for famous people, you know, like people are always like, oh, you know, this famous person's so nice. He said hi to me. No, 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 no. Henry right. Winkler was the nicest person on set. I mean, like, like the most thoughtful um, it was, I mean, to me, it, it changed me. It, it's honestly changed me a little bit because someone with his stature asking the producer to gather everybody's birthday for the crew, oh, wow. not, not for the clients, not, not for the clients, not for the agency, but he wanted to know when the grips were coming. Yeah. Nice. He wanted to know. I mean, and then, and then at the end, he was just like, I want to take a picture with all the crew members. And so that's rarely done. And so we that's gather around and like there were like grips and electricians and stuff. And Henry's like, hey, why are those guys not coming over here? Well, they're usually not invited. And Henry's like, come over here. I want I want all the grips. I want the electricians. You know, like this is just for the crew. Let's take pictures with the crew. And um, there was one thing that was like so amazing that he did. Um, Anna, Anna baked him a, um, a bunt cake, which, you know, really touched him and he really loved it. And I have a picture of those two together. And it's it's one of my favorite pictures. The smiles on both of their faces is amazing. We have a lemon tree in our backyard and Anna made a lemon bunt cake for Henry Winkler because she found out that he likes bunt cakes. And he was he was really moved by it. And she and, and my, my wife, yeah, my yeah, wife exactly. is. In a, a, but yeah. um, so we had this this young kid, um, talented. He was just doing BTS stuff, right? Mm. And I said, "Hey, I'm I'm shooting this monologue with Henry Winkler. I think I'm going to need a B camera. Do you mind shooting B camera stuff? Just you know, just go back and forth. So there's a little bit of movement. If I need to cut like a word or something, or if he flubbed, I can have two cameras because I I only had one camera and we had to shoot so much stuff. And so the kid is there, and he's you know kind of going just like I told him. He's going back and forth, and then in in the middle of probably about the fifth take, Henry's like. He, he said, can, can we stop? And then he whispered and I could hear cause I had, he had the lav mic and he goes to this kid. He goes, Hey, come here, come here. He goes, no, no, you come here. He's like, no, come here, come here. I want to talk to you. And the kid is like really sheepish. You know, he's like a, you know, young guy, maybe 21 years old, you know, first couple times on set or whatever. And he walks over and Henry Winkler puts his hand on his shoulder. He goes, he goes, um, I just want to tell you that, um, you know, you're, you're in my eyeline and, and it's distracting to me. And and he goes, you're going to find out over the course of your career that um, actors eyelines kind of a thing. And he goes, and for me, I'm just really sensitive to it. So, you know, if you could, I don't mind if you stand there, but if you could just not um, move so much, maybe it would be less distracting, you know? And he goes, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to out you like this, but I'm just, I'm just telling you. And I said, he goes, I, over the course of your career, you're going to probably find um, different actors who um, react to that differently. You know, he goes, well, sure. just, and then, then I motioned to the kid and I was just like, well, just kind of come over here. You know, it was my idea to do the B-roll. I'm, I'm sorry. I put you in that position. That's right. And then after we were done doing that, Henry wanted to go find that kid on set and just reassure him that he wasn't, 
trying to embarrass him or he wasn't angry at him or anything like that. He was just trying to do something he felt was like going to be really helpful for the rest of this kid's career to know because obviously he was just starting out. But it's like, who does that? Nobody does that. You know, but like Henry Winkler is, I mean, he is, he's got a reputation for being like one of the nicest people alive. And I have to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little kind of teary eyed even thinking about what a lovely person he was or is, uh, what a lovely person he was to work with. Um, what an amazing person he still is, but he, um, I've, there's, there's a bit of me that is my onset. I'm going to be a little bit more thoughtful from now on on set. Not that I haven't been, right. you know, but sometimes I joke around too much. Sometimes I, you know, you know, like sometimes you can get a little obnoxious because you're stir crazy and you say silly stuff or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. just seeing somebody with Henry Winkler's stature and his training, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a Yale educated or he's a Yale um, educated repertoire actor, serious guy, you know, talented guy. Um, seeing him take that amount of time with somebody who everybody else would just kind of dismiss as being insignificant really blew me away. And that's, that's, that's the way things are. That's the way things Yeah, definitely. And that's that's the kind of stuff that you as a, a director on set, doing live action, doing the stuff that you're doing, those are the opportunities you get to see stuff like that and be inspired by people like that. That's that doesn't really happen as much when you're sitting in a chair all day working with your amazing fellows, but you know, doesn't right. doesn't happen as much. So, so I think that's a beautiful way to finish this. I I want to have one last question that I always pop to everybody. Who would sure. you like to to listen to come on the podcast and and and, and talk to me and listen to his story? Or her. Anybody comes to mind? Um, let's see. I people that you know, I mean, I've always felt that Karen Fong was, you know, a really interesting person. I was on the Emmy board with her. I really loved working with her. I think she's brilliant. She's coming um, I on. I think she's really oh good. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I will tune into that. Um yeah. definitely, definitely coming on. Gosh, you, you know, like hopefully you edit out me trying to think really hard on who I'm trying to think of. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, to be honest, with you, I don't, I don't edit, I don't edit any of these podcasts. It's all raw. <laughs> oh, you, 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 <laughs> no chance um, in hell. Well, you know, I would, I would have to say that um, right now, all of my heroes seem to be photographers. Like that's who I'm. Oh, and dude. I just worked with, um, I just worked with Martin Scholler. Um, oh wow! You know, do you know? Do you know him? I think I, I think I know Martin Schuller. I think I've seen his work. I think I think I've referenced his work. Yeah, 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 yeah. He does those close-up things with though the lighting and and things. Well, yeah. here's the funny thing. So I'm, I'm directing this um, Henry Winkler spot, right? Mm. Campaign, and they keep on saying, "Hey, now you're going to have to make some time for the photographer. We're going to have a photographer." working on, a, on another set, you know, doing all of these um, shots of him, you know, and, you know, we would like to get some of the shots on your sets too. So even though, you know, we're hiring this guy to do portraiture and stuff, um, you know, it'd be really nice to, um, you know, if you gave him just a little bit of time so he could get in and do some things here too. I was like, yeah, sure. You know, it's no problem. So they, he was always referred to as the photographer. And so I'm, I go to our pre-pro meeting 
And I see this woman sitting there and I was like, oh, hey, I said, are you with the client or the agency? She goes, oh, I'm with the photographer, Martin Scholler. And I like fell over. I was like, you kid, what? And she goes, yeah, Martin Scholler is, is, you know, it was hired to do all the, the, the print for this. And I'm like, oh my God. And I'm, I'm such a photo nerd at this point. Right. Yeah, me I started too. hyperventilating and I was just like, I'm like, I'm, you know, like not <laughs> only sure. working with Henry Parker, but Martin Scholler, are you kidding me? Um, and he turned out to be, you know, like another just sweet, such a great person and very interesting too. Like he does a lot of like, almost like archaeological, anthropological mm. stuff. So he's a very thoughtful person and there, he's not just a, not just a photographer who does portraits, you know, he's got a lot of meat um, to his thinking and, and um, you know, he goes to places and does these portraits of homeless people and then, you know, to indigenous folks and, and to, you know, talks about healthcare and all this sort of stuff. So, I mean, I really loved hanging out with him. I wish I had more time to speak with him, but he would be yeah. a person that I think would be dude, really amazing. To that would be, dude, that what? That would be amazing to get. Is that I was, well, I, was I, can, I can you, uh, can you, Trying to hook us up, maybe try to make it happen. Yeah, I'll try That'd to. Yeah. Great. I have his. I have his um, producer's number, email. Dude, thank you so much. That would be that would be awesome. Because I actually I I chatted to, I'm spacing on his name. Uh, this amazing photographer based in the UK who does, um, he did the uh, the Obama stuff. He did the um, he does a lot of magazine work. Uh, what's his name again? Uh, I always reference him yeah, on I'm, almost every I'm project. Bad names. I'm spacing on his name. I'm sure I know well, who he is. But anyway, but here, I, I, I mean, I, yeah. Well, there's there's other people too that um, I think would be really interesting for you to talk to. And these are all people that I've worked with, you know, so like people in this industry. Mm -hmm. Martin Schuller might be, you know, like a little bit out of the industry, but no, no less. But I, I mean, I, I think you know, like I would love to get. I would love to get. Uh, you know, I've I've been trying to get. Like I said, this guy I, I'm spacing on his name is huge photographer. Yeah. I've been trying to get a photographer to come on the show because um, I think there's a lot of stuff in common with those guys, obviously. And I just want to talk to people who are a little bit outside of the industry that can speak to them. Sure. Know? In inside the industry, I you know. I, I worked with uh, Vince Haycock. You know, he's he's a, a pretty well-known director right now, known primarily for right. music videos. He was a guy who's in our Chicago office. Noah Konopask, I think, is another guy who's doing really nice work. Andre Stringer. Um, Ooh, these are I'll all people, you know, these yeah, are all people. Those, yeah, those guys are all amazing. You know, I can, yeah. I can put you in touch with all of them if if you'd like, you know. Oh, um, nice. But I find, I find Vince, Andre, Thank and you. Noah to be... Um, you know, and, and also to Mason Nickel, you know, Mason Nickel um, is one of my all time favorite designers and just a really brilliant creative. You know, he was another person out of the Seattle office of DK that I worked with. But um, those those people um, yeah. would be would be, would be awesome. Um, Martin Scholler would be great. All my other heroes are dead. Uh, Irving Penn would be awesome, but I don't <laughs> think he's a I would love to get, uh, you know, uh, even just one of those guys would be wonderful, Eric. And I, I just remembered the name of the photographer, made out of Kender. You know who he is, right? Hmm. Yeah, that, yeah, yes, I do. I do. Yes. I, I actually spoke to him over Instagram, of all things. And he said he doesn't do podcasts. So, you know, but, hmm. but that, that's one of the, one of the names that I wanted to, 
and I, I, I got a, a similar story to the one that you have uh, with a photographer because I'm, I'm actually still working on this project. It's, it's a title sequence. And they kept saying um, they had some set photography, some location photography that they were shooting over. And that was all fine and good. But they said that they had this foot, this war photographer was going to mm. drop by and do a shoot and just shoot whatever they were shooting on set. And I was like, a war photographer? That's very much up my alley. I, I know all of those guys. Yeah. And they, they wouldn't say the name. And I was like, mm, I'm pretty sure I know who that is. And lo and behold, yeah. they dropped they dropped the folder on the cloud, and it said Lindsay Abadio. And Lindsay, for those yeah. who don't know, is a wonderful, amazing war photographer working for the New York Times. She's she was, and I think she's going back to the Ukraine, and she actually shot a lot of the stuff you've all been seeing uh, front pages of the newspapers. And she she dropped by and she shot stuff for the show. And I was over the moon. I actually obviously didn't talk to her or had any contact with her. We're just working with stuff that she shot for the little sequence that I'm doing. Right. You know, that's to be in that cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know, that's, I know, it is. It's pretty cool. Anyway, sir, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Uh, always a pleasure talking to you. I knew this was going to be great. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that we are able to work it out. I know you had a conflict um last week and then um i've yeah. been i'm a notorious insomnia sufferer and i laid awake in bed until six in the morning and i'm like i can't hop on i can't hop on his podcast right now it's like there's no way i'm i'm, I'm gonna be dead so uh, yeah i'm glad we were able to do it this week no uh, just thank you thank you for doing it and uh let's keep in touch like we always have all right man we'll all talk right. to you soon all right, all right sir thanks Bye -bye. <laughs>